see we're continuing on with uh, God's speeches to Job. This is the second one, and so I just call this Answered by God, Part 2. One of the commentators I read is Christopher Ash. He did a wonderful work on the book of Job. If you were looking to, to dive in and said, I want to go back through Job, and I don't know if you'd want to do that right now, but if you ever thought to do that, it's a great book to buy. Uh, but I was reading through some of what he wrote, and Christopher Ash asked this question, How are we to respond when mind-numbing, terrifying, supernatural evil breaks into the ordered, domesticated life of the farm, or life as we often live it? The world in which we exercise some reassuring measure of control, where life seems to dominate rather than death, and where there is predictability that makes normal life possible and sustainable. How do we respond when mind-numbing evil breaks into that type of life. Well, God, without skirting any of that reality, answers that question for us and for Job in this second speech. Just like the first speech that God gave, it's not necessarily at the level we think it should be at. It's always higher with God. It's always bigger with God. It's always broader with God. But he's going to answer that question. What do we do with evil? What is the answer to that big question, that the question of things we cannot handle that are beyond us and beyond our control? Well, first, before he dives into that answer and the illustration of Behemoth and Leviathan, uh, we're going to see him address Job's accusations. The, the main one that he's made that God is unjust, and he's going to do so with another direct address. This is verses 7 or 6 to 14. Now, in the first speech by God, he dealt with Job's questions about how God governed. He's saying, you don't rule the world like it should be ruled. Uh, it was the idea that Job or, or we could bring something to the table, uh, that we could enhance what God has done. It's a lot of arrogance permeates that. In the second speech, God confronts the issue of his justice a question that Job has asked that in all reality undermines God's character. You see, if I question your justice, it doesn't undermine your character. It, it speaks to a circumstance because you've been unjust in your life. You've been unfair. When you question God's justice, you question who he is. Because the second God is not just, then he can't be defined as just. It's not a character quality because it's perfection with him. And so Job, maybe unwittingly, is asking and has asked and said to God, you're not just, you're not fair, you're not right, this isn't the way things work. And what he's done is undermined who God is. And so uh, it continues on that, then answer the Lord unto Job out of the whirlwind and said, gird up thy loins now like a man, I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. Wilt thou also disannul my judgment? Wilt thou condemn me that thou mayest be righteous? In other words, you think you're going to call me in? You think you're going to tell me that you're right and I'm wrong? You think this is how life works, that this is the answer to your suffering? And how many people while suffering, what is, what is often the response they'll make? They'll start questioning God. They'll undermine God. They'll go after God. And God is, is confronting our natural response often and saying, you're going to try to make me not God so that you can feel a little more right, more justified, a little more correct. See, God speaks again 
to Job from the whirlwind. And, and I wonder, because Scripture doesn't necessarily tell us, is this, is this whirlwind speaking? Is it something that only Job hears, or is it something that everyone gathered there hears? Uh, regardless, God says this, dress for action. In other words, get ready, be prepared. And he's speaking very directly to Job. And he says, you want to put me, you want to put God on trial to condemn me so you can feel justified? Well, God says, hast thou an arm like God? Or canst thou thunder with a voice like him? And it goes all the way back. Remember all the lightning and all the conversations about his voice. And then he says, deck thyself now with majesty and excellencies. And I'll mention this, but God gets sarcastic here. Uh, just to prove that sarcasm is, is God-ordained. Uh, and array thyself with glory and beauty. Cast abroad the rage of thy wrath. And behold, everyone that is proud and abase him. Look on everyone that is proud and bring him low. And tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together and bind their faces in secret. Then will I also confess unto thee that thine own right hand can save thee. God asks Job, and in, in to Job's question about whether God is just, God says to Job, are you as mighty as I am? Go ahead. Put on my judge's robes. You dress the part and then take action against injustice. That's what he's saying to Job. Go ahead, put, put the robes. Go ahead. You be God then, if that's the case. And God is not saying this in the context that God is being defensive, right? We do that sometimes. When someone critiques us, we say, well, you do it then. And we throw our hands up. I've done the best I can. God's not saying that. God is confronting Job's arrogance and says, great, you play God. You put the robes on because I've done perfectly, but let's confront your mind and your accusations. You see everything that happens in the world and you handle it your way. You bring the pride and the proudful down, and you punish all the wicked and evil. Go ahead and enact perfect justice on all the earth, which is what God's doing. Make it work perfectly. Make everything end the way it's supposed to end. Let's see now if your rants and opinions solve even your own problems and sins. See, God says to him at the end, if you can fix just yourself and if you can save just yourself, then I'll admit you're right and I'll let you rule supremely. But we know Job can't fix anything. He's just been ranting and spitting out words. Oftentimes those words are accurate, right? Because God, at the close of this, God is going to basically apply what Job asked for periodically through his speeches. He looked for a redeemer. And God is basically going to take Job after he shows him what evil looks like and what evil does, and he's going to say, run to your Redeemer. It's going to be the application that we're going to have when you don't know what's going on, when the evil around you is overwhelming, when the suffering is more than you can bear, run to God. That's the answer that he's going to give, but not in a simplistic way. You see, Job can't fix himself, and Job can't solve his problem. Job can't redeem himself from his own sin. See, Job thought he knew better than God. Job thought he was right instead of God because he thought God was not dealing with evil the way he should. Telling God, you're not handling the bad people in the right way. They're getting away with everything and I'm being punished. So God made sure that Job knew that he, Job, does not know what it will mean to conquer and subdue evil. As we dive into the two illustrations, and by the way, we'll, we'll talk about Behemoth and Leviathan, and, 
And we move from the natural world to the supernatural and to the mythological. Uh, These beasts represent, there is a visual of them in nature and and that moves all over. Uh, There's people that think it's the hippopotamus and the crocodile. Uh, If you wanted to to pick a beast, I would say you'd go to dinosaurs. You'd look at the, I don't know what the dinosaur names are, the long-necked dinosaur. A lot of people have in the the triceratops. If you're a dinosaur person, I'm apologizing up front for not getting those right. But that is limited. That doesn't quite cover what God's about to talk about. Because Job says to God, you're not dealing with evil. And God says to Job, you have no idea what evil looks like. You have no concept of evil and how to handle evil. Actually, you can't handle evil. That's what God's going to show him, which was what will drive Job to realize that he runs to God, that you go to God because he does control it. Job couldn't even save himself from evil and the penalty of it, and neither can we. Job needed to fix his eyes on the Redeemer he sought and mentioned. You see, evil and death would only be ultimately defeated by Christ and his work on the cross. One commentator notes, only by death can death be destroyed. So God made his point clear to Job with this series of sarcastic questions to help Job see that he, Job, had no answer for evil, no answer for justice, but that he could look to the only one and should look to the only one who does have the answer and who does have control. Because as we dive into these beasts and they become fairly magnificent, God makes sure Job understands that they're mighty and amazing and beyond our comprehension and beyond our control, but that God still had them on a leash. And to make that clear about evil and how awesome evil can be, how overwhelming, how horrific. God now describes some creatures. And as I mentioned just briefly before, these creatures don't have an exact replica in nature. They are a little beyond or way beyond what nature puts out, though we're going to see similarities there. We're going to see, we're going to see some resemblance. Thus, Commentators through the ages see a hippopotamus, a crocodile, or they see dinosaurs. They see different beasts that have a sense of likeness. But one writer wrote this, the first speech spoke of the natural created order in ways that hinted at supernatural forces and agencies. The second speech portrays these supernatural agencies in vivid forms. So just enjoy, quote unquote, the walk into these beasts and don't try to constrain them to one form because you can't quite do that. People have seen different creatures and then they've defined it in certain ways. But the whole point is this. These are storybook creatures to some extent, represented in the false religion that surrounded the day. Actually, you're going to see one of these beasts listed throughout scripture and it's called a dragon, leviathan, multi-headed, always seems to be playing in the sea and doing chaos and evil. But God is going to use them to make a point, to show God's power over the unthinkable. And so the first creature comes on the scene, behemoth, and it represents unsatiable death. It's what we dread. Behemoth, by the way, is a plural word in Hebrew. It's not a singular word, yet the whole description is about one beast. And what's the point? Why in the world would you use a plural word to define a singular, a one beast with plurality. And the whole idea is it's implying a super beast. So I'll start with 15. Behold now, Behemoth, which I made with thee. 
He eateth grass as an ox. And that word eateth, by the way, does mean eat, but also carries the connotation of devours. And so sometimes our translation calms the animal down. But I want you to see the word devoured there. Here's behemoth, and it, it exists with us. And why do we have death? Well, it's because of our sin. And it says he devours grass as an ox. Think of a stampede coming through, but it's one animal. Lo now, his strength is in his loins and his force is in the navel of his belly. He moveth his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his stones are wrapped together. His bones are as strong pieces of brass. His bones are like bars of iron. He is the chief of the ways of God. He that made him can make his sword to approach unto him. And if you're going to underline something about Behemoth, 19b is where you want to underline. That's God telling Job, he's beyond your control, Job. And let's be honest, if you're sitting here, you know you don't control death. We don't have a handle on it. We don't know when. We often don't know how. And all we have to do is run through our history and run through our family and see the loss and see the pain and understand that we don't control death. But God makes Job understand one thing. He does. Surely the mountains bring forth, bring him forth food. And that sounds nice, like this beast is walking on mountains. The word for bringing him forth food means that the mountains bring him tribute. They have to bring. Death is never satisfied. Where all the beasts of the field play, he lieth under the shady trees in the covert of the reed and vents. The shady trees cover him with their shadow. The willows of the brook compass him about. And it seems peaceful, seems quiet. And you understand that that's right. Death sometimes is quiet and sometimes it's not roaring and sometimes it's not devouring, but it will. Behold, he drinketh up a river and hasteth not. He trusteth that he can draw up Jordan into his mouth. He take it with his eyes, his nose pierceth through snares. In other words, you can't get a grip of it. And I want to write here, here's the super beast of death. One that has a hearty and insatiable appetite. It's going to devour the grass. God paints for Job a picture of this animal, a beast of tremendous strength and virility. Part of his description of the beast talks about it never going away, never becoming extinct in that sense. It's always around. This creature has position. Death tends to occupy the mind. We were just in our what are we afraid of or not being fearful and anxiety. And we dealt with the idea of death because it can occupy the mind. And yet death does not have the ultimate victory. Instead, the maker and creator has the authority over it, regardless of its immense power and our inability against it. And that's what God is painting for him. The first thing we look at in life is we fear death. We worry about the end, what's coming up and what's going to happen and just to strike a chord of fear, you have children and you wonder, are they safe? Will they be safe? Are they going to be safe on the road? If they go away to college, will they be safe there? Think of all the things where death comes in and almost cripples the mind. That scene, right? And then, but God says, you don't have control over death. You can't get a grip, but my sword does. That's what he's saying. He that made him make his sword approach into him. And we know that God has crushed death for us through the death of Jesus Christ. Death is something brought on by sin. We were created, and we'll talk about it a little bit later maybe, with eternity in our heart. If you look at Ecclesiastes, it's the word says, I think it's 314. It might say world. It depends what translation you have. The word means eternity. We were created to live forever. 
Yet our sin caused death. And so here is Behemoth, death. It's brought constant tribute. The mountains bring it food. And even though death may seem hidden, it is ever lurking. It is a constant presence. And the reality is we as humans cannot grab it by the eyes. We can't take death by the horns. We cannot tame death. You may be bold as you speak about death. You may say that you don't fear death. And that may be true, but you definitely don't control it. Not a single person can say to somebody else, don't worry about death. I've got it wrangled. I've got it tied up. Death can't get you. You can never, ever give that promise. But God can. So the first insurmountable evil that God confronts Job with is death itself. As one person notes, this is the ever-hungry super beast, always devouring the grim reaper, the hooded figure of death, with his sickle picking off one and then another to keep feeding his insatiable appetite. And we're defenseless against this beast. It leaves us feeling vulnerable. And you might think, well, I'm not defenseless, Kenny. I got an armory at my house. They can't break in and kill me. I'm not defenseless because I work out every day and I'm in supreme health. Disease cannot get me. You are defenseless. We might be desperate to avoid it, but we're unable to escape it. It taints all of life and shadows all that seems good. Yet that evil, the weight of death, accomplishes something critical because it exposes our weakness and self-reliance. It tells us we need someone beyond us to deal with this. We do have, every human has eternity written in their heart. A dog doesn't feel this thought. A horse doesn't think this thought. They don't walk through this. They don't have eternity in their heart. We do. And so we're always, if we're honest, anyone in the world is honest, they're going to wrestle with this idea of mortality, of death. Because death tells us we need God, the one who owns death and can take his sword to demolish death and its power. Job and we are to grapple with the heaviness and impossibility of handling death, but we're not to grapple without hope because the great and only maker and creator is not thwarted by death, nor is death beyond his control. So here's a question I put down. Does death and all its strength and magnitude drive us to our Redeemer and to the all-powerful God, to our Savior, or does it drive us away? And as you look at the response of people to death in dealing with that, it either drives them to ignore it and to ignore God, or it drives them to their Savior and their desperate, desperate need for a Redeemer. Yet Behemoth, the picture of unsatiable death, is not the worst or most dramatic evil. Job was aware of death, everyone is, but was not so cognitive of Satan, nor of Satan's role in his individual suffering and that of all humanities. Job has spoken of his oppressive suffering and affliction, and he's been afflicted, by the way, both physically and mentally. So as you walk with Job through chapter 3, and I'm not going to do a whole review of all his speeches, but you see someone whose mind is being attacked. It's being harassed. It's being afflicted. Yet he always, in his affliction, saw God as the one acting. Even in Job, he asked, if it's not God, then who is it? And God's about to tell him, I'll tell you who it is. It's going to be Satan. 
Because Job has never quite grasped that the Satan was the one tormenting him directly. So God is going to go introduce Job now to the, I put here, undeniable devil. Leviathan, the sea monster. It's the picture of that person of evil, the embodiment of cosmic evil itself. There's references all through scripture. There's references in extra biblical resources. So if you go into the Ugaritic faith, you're going to see Leviathan. Uh, Job references Leviathan in chapter three, and everyone knows he's not talking about a dinosaur or a crocodile here. They know he's referencing a mythological or storybook creature that represents evil, but he has no idea how evil this beast is, uh, but not even to go into those sources. This is the piercing crooked serpent, Leviathan, the dragon, spoken of in Isaiah 27.1. It's a many-headed dragon. Again, Leviathan crushed in Psalm 74, 12-14, when God is writing about the Exodus. And in, as the Jews leave Egypt, it says they've crushed the head of Leviathan. Why? Well, What does Satan want? He wants the chosen people through which the Messiah is going to come to be integrated into Egypt and to disappear from existence. And so as they leave Egypt, you have a victory for salvation and redemption. Psalm 74, 12 through 14. He is the beast that is forced to play in the sea. God says in Psalm 104, 25 through 26, that he makes the devil basically like a bad child getting a playpen and be out of the way. And, and what he's saying, and, and remember what the sea represented. It always represented chaos and evil and struggle. And so in that context, we see in scripture that God says to him, he's, he's constrained, he's limited and sent to play there. If you read about the dragon in Revelation and you'll see it all through Revelation, you're looking at Leviathan. Job is getting a picture here of cosmic evil painted by God so he can understand a couple things. One, his, inab- his inability to manage it. Leviathan is an awesome creature, and I use that not because it's super cool and super neat, but because it's overwhelming in how it appears. It is unimaginably awful. And then on top of that, God paints this picture so we get a grip of the immensity of evil And then God shows that evil is infinitely easy for him to control. God has evil on a leash, so to speak, and we can't even imagine being near it. Ultimately, we see evil in its most terrifying form, not some tame little red devil on your shoulder competing with an angel, but instead unfathomable evil that shocks us to our core yet drives us to see the true God who easily contains and ultimately destroys the beasts. So God begins with some questions. Canst thou draw out Leviathan with a hook? And in your mind, I want you to think of somebody on a dock with a fishing pole in hand, fishing for Leviathan. Can you catch Leviathan with a fishing pole? Little eight-pound line, little hook. Can you get him? Or is his tongue with a cord which thou lettest down? Canst thou put a hook into his nose or bore his jaw through with a thorn? Will he make many supplications unto thee? In other words, is he going to sit like a dog begging you to feed it, pet it, acknowledge it? Will he speak soft words unto thee? Will he make a covenant with thee? Will thou make him or take him for a servant forever? Wilt thou play with him as with a bird or wilt thou bind him for thy maidens? Is this going to be a pet for your kids? Is this a bird in a cage that's going to talk back to you? Can you teach it Polly want a cracker and it's going to repeat that back? 
That's what God is saying to Job here. Shalt thou companions make a banquet of them? Are you going to eat them? Are you going to kill them and buy his meat and eat it off the market? Shalt thou part them among the merchants? Canst thou fill his skin with barbed irons or his head with fish spears? Job is aware of who Leviathan is. He mentions him briefly in chapter 3. He understands that he embodies evil. He has no concept of the evil or the magnitude of evil. So God just starts off referencing this beast again that Job is aware of, that he knows is chaos and evil. And he's saying to Job, you don't even have an idea what's going on. Can you catch it with a little bait and a hook? And, and what seems to be the case initially is God is telling Job that you have approached this very feebly. You've approached the discussion about ultimate evil and you've done it with a very feeble argument. It's far above and beyond you, he's saying. You've come at a massive sea monster with a simple fishing pole. And God is saying with all these questions, you have misunderstood the most wicked of creatures and thought you could bait and tame him. In the process of attacking God's justice, God is saying you've been ignorant of the immensity of evil. You have no concept. That's why he started the discussion saying, why don't you tame evil? Why don't you deal with evil? And then he closes with, why don't you just deal with your own evil? your own sin. Why don't you save yourself? And right away, Job knows he can't do it. He's sitting there suffering, dying with no answers. So you can throw a stone at God and God says, well, you can't even deal with yourself. And now he's painting this picture of a beast, an evil. And he's saying, you've been very foolish in your thinking. He says again in eight, lay thine hand upon him. Remember the battle, do no more. Behold, the hope of him is in vain. In other words, anyone who thinks they can beat Leviathan, and, and just as a context, when people want to belittle the power of Satan, what a foolish thing to do. It's, it's, it's a lie. It's not possible. Shalt, thou not, shalt not one be cast down even at the sight of him? You're going to fall down just looking at him. None is so fierce that dare stir him up. And this is the interesting switch. Who then is able to stand before me? You couldn't even stand before a creative being. That represents evil. And then how dare you think you can stand before God who hath prevented me that I should repay him. Whatsoever is under the whole heaven is mine. It's a reminder to Job that as he starts painting the picture of this beast, he needs to remember who owns the beast and who controls the beast. Go ahead, Job, attempt to engage this in battle. If you did, you'd never try it again, God said. He's far too strong and dangerous. Thinking you can is a false hope a lie that we tell ourselves. And then the catch, if you can't stand before this beast, why would you ever think to confront the one who owns it? Of all the smart responses people give about God, when I get to heaven, I'll tell God this. I'd like to stand before God and ask him this question. When I get to heaven, I'm going to tell God, this is, I think, Bertrand Russell, not enough evidence. And God is telling Job and he's telling all of us, you're never going to walk before God and speak this way. Because none of those smart mouths, I call it, would even dare to think to talk before this beast. And, and God is setting Job up to say, you've been mouthing off to someone way more powerful than something that you're horrifically afraid of. And he's basically going to show him how horrifically afraid he is. So he understands you don't speak back to God. God, in the midst of showing the might of Satan and the magnitude of his evil, is now flipping the script. And he's telling Job, you're weak compared to this being who I've created and I rule over. Nothing compares to God. Nothing compares to the Almighty, which, by the way, gives us hope 
about the end of evil and the final outcome. Why are we driven to our Savior every time? Because when we realize the immensity of evil and the impossibility of evil, we're reminded that God is way beyond that. And so we go to God. Yet God is not done describing the might of Satan. He says, I won't conceal his parts, nor his power, nor his comely proportion. In other words, I'm not going to I'm not going to hide the fact that as horrific as Satan is, he's still also a beautiful creature. And we know that God created him beautiful. Who can discover the face of his garment or who can come to him with his double bridle? In other words, you're not going to you're not going to saddle him up. You're not going to ride him. Who can open the doors of his face? His teeth are terrible round about. His scales are his pride shut up together as with a close seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. And when you say no air can come in between something, it's sealed. It's impossible. There's no weakness. They are joined one to another. They stick together they, that they cannot be sundered. They can't be pierced. By his knees things a light does shine, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. So when, when Satan opens his eyes, it's as bright as the dawn. Out of his mouth go burning lamps, and sparks of fire leap out. It's breathing fire. Out of his nostrils go a smoke as of a, out of a seething pot, a cauldron. And we right away start seeing a dragon, a fire-breathing dragon, and right away we think of every princess story, and we see the knight kill the dragon, and that's going to mess us up because there's nobody killing this dragon. But that it's breathing out fire from multiple heads, that it's beautiful and horrific in the same breath, well, that's true. That you couldn't kill it if you tried, that's true. In his neck remaineth strength, and sorrow is turned into joy before him. The flakes of his flesh are joined together. They are firm in themselves. They cannot be moved. His heart is as firm as a stone, yea, his heart is a piece of the nether millstone. These are the details about this creature. It is unbelievably strong and beautiful. And, and Satan was the most beautiful of God's creatures. But remember this Satan was created, he is not a God. That he's supernatural, we don't argue, but he is not God. He is created. It cannot be bridled. It's untamed and wild. Its face is terrifying. It is covered in impregnable scales with no weak spots. Eyes as bright as the dawn. Fire coming out of his mouth. Fire as ash notes that depicts the intensity of hatred and malice found in his heart. It breathes out fire because it wants to destroy. Satan has a singular purpose. Thus he reeks of death, nothing soft and cuddly about him. He's a hard-hearted creature. There's no give in him, and there's no repentance. We know from Scripture there's no repentance possible for him. But understand who he is, beautiful and terrifying, horrifically hateful, singular in his attack on what is good and on God. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. By reason of breaking, they purify themselves. The sword of him that layeth at him cannot hold. The spear, the dart, nor the habergeon. He esteemeth iron as straw and brass as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. I just want you to realize the long list of all war weapons. Sling stones are turned with him into stubble. Darts are counted as stubble. He laugheth at the shaking of a spear. In other words, any human attack is feeble. The bravest of soldiers will cower in fear. They almost lose their mind because of him. I want you to get a grip because we are sitting here and knights and dragons and war and we think we're going to ride our horse and slay the dragon. And, and he's saying here the best of the best soldier is going to lose their mind when they see him. And whether you engage him in close combat or attack from afar, nothing phases it. 
Let's put it in our weaponry. You can get your tanks up close and you can shoot at them and it's not going to do anything. You could drop a nuclear bomb on Satan and he's going to laugh at it. We have nothing that phases him. The fact is the best we have to offer against him is just a joke in his eyes. Sharp stones are under him. He spreadeth sharp pointed things upon the mire. Now he's back in the sea. He maketh the deep to boil like a pot. In other words, he's stirring up evil and chaos. He maketh the sea like a pot of ointment. He maketh the path to shine after him. One would think the deep to be hoary or white. In other words, think of the sea and think of something whipping it into a froth, white with froth, and it's just all in turmoil. His whole underside is sharp. In other words, it's not defenseless. And he is found thrashing about in the sea, making it white with foam. That place of evil, danger, and hostility to God that place of death, and the devil is there, and he's whipping it up into a frenzy. Think of the worst type of storms. Think of how violent that becomes, and that's the picture God's painting for Job and us. And what is the point of this? It's to let you know that you can't beat him without God. There's only one who controls him, and it's not us. Upon earth, upon earth there is not as like who is made without fear. He beholdeth all high things. He is king over all the children of pride. And that paints that final picture of where he rules. He is unique upon all the earth. And by the way, Satan was created unique. He's the king of the proud and the boastful. In fact, he is the proudest and strongest ruler of them all. The king of the forces of evil. And he's spoken of from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. What do we see described for us here? Leviathan, the sea monster that depicts evil and hostility to God. It depicts the undeniable, ev- the undeniable devil, the Satan, as it's said throughout Job. Havel notes this, though, and this is what's important because we see this mythological creature, this magnificent description, and we wonder how in the world do people know what God was talking about? Why is Job not given any Beyond this, Job's given no other explanation, and yet his response is repentance, and he falls on his face. The first speech to the natural world, he said, I'm going to cover my mouth. I'm not talking anymore. You hear this described, and he falls on his face in repentance and worship to God. Havel notes this of the original audience that would read this text. It is difficult to imagine that an Israelite audience would have heard the name Leviathan without making these associations. In other words, when you open this book, when you read Job, when you heard Job, probably originally oral, and then as you opened the book of Job and read it, you understood that God was talking about Satan. Without a doubt, you would have made the connection and understand it just like Job did. Job wasn't wondering. He doesn't say to God, hey, does, now what does that mean? I'm not sure what you meant, God, by this beast. He knew exactly what he meant. God has explained it carefully and graphically to Job so he, Job, can understand the utter power and chaotic supernatural terror that has caused his suffering. God wants Job to realize that Job is unable to tame or tackle such a one, that evil has a picture and it's horrific. Yet in the midst of all the turmoil, God made clear that no matter how powerful Satan is, no matter how undeniable his existence, Satan is nothing compared to God. What we cannot even fathom resisting, God controls and has completely conquered. 
Here is the ruler of the proud, the prince of the power of the air, the untamable evil and chaotic one. Here is the afflictor and accuser of the brethren, the beast that Job and we cannot take on, yet God has him on a leash. He's not your pet, Job, in essence, but God says he's mine. He's on a leash. He does what I tell him. He cannot move beyond what I let him do. And that is the answer to Job about his suffering and evil. Here is the one that has afflicted you both physically and mentally. Here is the one that has pretended to be God. See, that's what Satan is, the deceiver. Why did Job keep thinking he was seeing God in his torment and his anguish? Because Satan is a representative. He tries to represent himself as God to look like the light. He's pretended to be the light. Here is the one that has caused so much doubt. But God says this, he's not going to walk free forever. He's on my leash and he ultimately will be defeated. Evil will end. God will have the ultimate victory, and that's a guarantee. And as New Testament saints, we know how God orchestrated that victory. Jesus, God's only son, became fully human while remaining fully God and destroyed Satan and all of his wickedness. Hebrews 2, 14 says this, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, as much as we are flesh and blood... He also himself likewise took part of the same. God became flesh, came to earth, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Hebrews 2.14 gives us the final picture of what God does with Leviathan. If you want to read other scary things in Scripture, go to Revelation and see all that takes place there. But recognize that dragon, that horrific beast that runs around seemingly unconstrained by anything. God breathes and it's gone. And God always shows us how powerful he is. He doesn't leave us hanging there thinking we can handle what Satan brings, but instead shows us that he can handle. And it doesn't even affect him it's not a battle for God. That's what I love about Revelation. <coughs> Never miss that. When God acts, when he comes with his army, we're riding horses like we're going to do battle, and we just watch God annihilate the devil and his own army with the breath of his mouth. We just are there for show almost. God is not even the least bit threatened by Satan. Because he's conquered death and sin, and he did it through his son. His redemptive plan before the foundation of the world accomplished through Jesus Christ. So where do we go when faced with death and Satan? Where do we turn to understand undeniable suffering, undefinable? When we're, when we're racked with the evil of this world and wondering, what do we do? We fall on our faces before God, the only true God, the Almighty One, who has conquered the insatiable death and the undeniable devil. When we face the unknowable pain that this world seems so gifted in giving, what do you do? Fall in worship and repentance before the maker and sovereign over everything. I know it seems simplistic, but as we walk through Scripture, what are we going to see? And I put here, ask yourselves, am I falling in worship and repentance before my Lord and Savior? As I walk through pain and suffering and suffering, what is my response? We've walked with Job. We've gotten almost sick of hearing Job, right? That's part of the, 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 the movement through Job. 42 chapters, finally an answer, and the answer is fall before your maker. That's exactly what Job does. 
That's what he's seen doing next. 42, one through six. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything. He hasn't been saying that up to this point. He's been telling God, do more, do different, do something else, answer my questions, take care of this problem for me. Now he says to God, you can do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. There's nothing you don't know. There's nothing you think that God isn't seeing. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Wherefore have I uttered that I understood not things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. I spoke against God, Job says, and I just had no concept of the magnitude of God's greatness and his power. And look, our privilege to come to him. Here I beseech thee and I will speak. I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. In other words, Job saying, what I knew about God was like nothing compared to what I've learned about him now. What is his response? Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. For 38 chapters, whatever it is, we've had Job saying, I'm somebody, God, you've got to answer me. Give me an answer. I have to have an answer. Take care of this thing. You're not just enough. You're not quick enough. You're not doing what I want. God, you need to handle this better. Do you need my help? Do you need my guidance? You can hire me as a consultant. I'm here to help. And now he says, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job cries out and says to God, you're the God of everything. You know it all and control it all. And now I see directly what I only heard about before. God is the only one capable of ruling and justice. Because that's what he's realizing. Don't think this is just somebody beating themselves up. This isn't Job suddenly saying, oh, I'm alone. Guess I have to bow down to God. He's all powerful. This is not a sarcastic response. This is someone who suddenly is getting a grip of something that God is the only one who can rule, that God is the only one capable of justice, that God is the only one worthy of worship. Thus, he is in ashes and dust. Because he's saying in that moment and by his actions, that physical movement that he makes, he's saying, I'm not worthy of worship, but I'm going to bow before the one who is. And so he says, my response will be repentance and worship of him and worship to him. Now, through the descriptive illustration of death and Satan, Job understands something. And this is hard. Job understands that he doesn't get it all. That he doesn't understand it all, that he actually can't process it all. That confronts our pride, right? Because when we hear from God, you can't handle this, our natural response is to say to God, yes, I can. When you see this world and, and I see people in the intellectual community and they push back, you explain to me, you ex God better explain the Bertrand Russell comment. I'm going to go to God. And he's, by the way, you don't have to know him. He's a philosopher from years back, uh, wrote a lot of books, just caused a lot of damage. But the fact is he, he went and says, someone says, well, what if you get to heaven and find out there is a God? What are you going to say to him? Which is a Wrong type of question, but still worked. And he says, not enough evidence. And that's how we think, right? God is constrained to our logic. God is constrained to our intellect. Somebody in the world has to understand this. It has to make perfect sense. They have to be able to figure it all out. And what Job is realizing is that he can't quite grasp it all, that God is not 
tied to his logic or his intellect, and he realized something, he also can't handle it all. He recognizes that there are things beyond him, beyond his intellect, beyond his control, beyond him. Yet Job knows the one who does get it. He knows the one who does grasp it. He knows the one who handles it. And so I'm going to close with a quote from Christopher Ashe. He notes this. This God who knows how to use supernatural evil to serve his purpose of ultimate good can and will use the darkest invasions into my own life for his definite and invincible plans for my good in Christ. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's close in prayer. And Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to dive into your word, to study what you've said to Job and how you answered him. Help us in humility to respond like Job. We desperately want this world to function in the sphere of our logic and our intellect. We want the answers to be at our level. And your answer to Job tells us something. There are components of this life and eternity that are beyond us. And it's not that you don't want to tell us, it's that we can't handle it. And so you shared the truth of evil with Job. You, you confronted death. You talked about the things he, he did struggle with, and you talked about the things he didn't even realize he was struggling with. And you showed Job not to demean him, but to align him, that our response to things we cannot put a, put a grip on or put a finger on, when we can't describe or explain evil. You've given us in Scripture the answer that there's components of evil that are unexplainable to us, but they're not unexplainable to you. And when we look at the world around us and we look at evil and we think of Satan, we think of suffering, and we think of all the things that maybe could cause a doubt. Instead, uh, we see in Job what our response is to be. When we see doubt rising, run to the Savior. When we're not sure, run to the Savior. Because we recognize this, we're called to turn to you and to recognize that we're not worthy of worship, but you are. And our response in the midst of turmoil and pain and suffering and, and questions and uncertainty and overwhelming fear and anxiety, our, our response ultimately is to worship you, to bow the knee and submit to you as the only one able and justified in ruling, the only one that is truly just, were to run to our Redeemer, the one that Job hinted at and thought about throughout his speeches, and God is saying, run to your Redeemer. Lord, as we embark on life, as we walk through pain and suffering, as we struggle with that, give us the fortitude and the wisdom to run to our Savior over and over again. In your precious and holy name, amen. Amen.